I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. Cincinnati's housing market, it is still hot, but we're finally seeing some signs that it's starting to cool off a bit. Steve and I discuss both the national and local trends impacting your home's value. We also talk about the end-of-year financial planning you'll want to start really soon and the pros and pitfalls of using a health savings account. Finally, I interview Carla Messer. She's the chief results officer of Best Work. She's an assistant professor at Indiana University East about how job seekers can stand out in those Zoom interviews. The housing market, well, it appears to be finally starting to cool down tonight. What does that mean for you? You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. List prices, well, Steve, they're starting to mean something again and not necessarily as the starting point and then let's go up from there, but as maybe the highest point that those sellers can get. And we haven't seen this in over a year. No, it's been crazy. I mean, if anybody has been checking their own house on Zillow, you're you're looking at Oh, my goodness. We paid what? And it's worth what? I, I mean, it's it's kind yeah. of fun to do. And, you know, the, the uh, list prices have been just a suggestion over the past year because homes are selling for twenty, thirty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 over list. I, I mean, you can vouch for that. You put your house on the market and, and you've talked to friends. I, I, I mean, you've seen this up close and personal. Well, we didn't even have to legitimately put it on the market. We yeah. listed ours on Zillow, and it sold, you know, almost immediately for for what we were asking. We, you know, we, we could have put it on the market, I guess, and let things get bit up, but we're building a house, and it just made more sense. But to your point, um, it's just been a crazy time, and, and I actually just looked at Zillow last night because we, we closed on our house today, and I thought, am I going to want to, like, pull my hair out when I see yeah. how much Zillow yeah. says my house is worth versus what we're actually getting for it. And the interesting thing is, is my house has gone up a little bit on Zillow since the last time I checked maybe a month ago, but someone else was just telling me that their house has started to go down on Zillow. And so I think what we're starting to see is what's what's happening nationally, depending on maybe some pockets of where you live, maybe home values are continuing to go up, but we're getting to more stability here. Yeah, it it couldn't go on forever. It's like the stock market doesn't go straight up and keep going to the moon. It's going to have some dips and, and, you know, you can't sustain the increase in prices that we've seen in the real estate market in 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 the United States it's it's been absolutely incredible and and the weird part to me Amy is Cincinnati is one of the strongest Here, here's what I'm getting to about the slowdown list prices okay they're starting to mean something again before they were just a suggestion to start negotiations in August list prices for over a thousand homes in Southwest Ohio dropped by five percent. That yes. that's the first time that's happened. So it's starting to get. It's still the highest number of price uh, reductions since November of twenty nine. We're still looking at new listings are up five percent. So in other words, a lot of homes are being put on the market, but the list prices aren't necessarily holding. And now people are starting to negotiate or getting a little nervous that okay, may, maybe I've had this listed for two weeks. I've only had a couple of bites. I need to drop the price. So we're starting to see a significant number of listings reduce their prices. And that tells me maybe we're on the beginning to a more healthy, sustainable market. 
I was uh, uh, talking to Michelle Sloan, who's our real estate expert, uh, just last week, and she was mentioning the fact that she has a home, and she says it's a great home, fully renovated, super updated, brand new kitchen, but it's on a really busy road in Mason. So even mm. though Mason is a really hot real estate market, uh, this she said, you know, four, five, six months ago, it wouldn't have mattered where the house was. It was going to fly off yeah. the market, yeah. but this one has been sitting there. Um, I, I get updates, uh, real estate updates, if, if something falls into a certain price range just because I, I love seeing what's out there. And I realized recently in my email inbox, wait, I saw this house a month ago and now they've reduced the price, you know, yeah, and I've seen yeah. that for several houses. So I think what we're starting to see is what we're all used to is kind of being normal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about time because yeah. I, you know, I, I get really nervous when, when I see, you know, been in this business for so many decades that when something is really out of the ordinary, it, it makes me nervous that, oh, okay, if this corrects, it's going to correct more because it's gone up more. But, you know, there's, I think a lot of people have thought, you know, could this be another 2008? Didn't that start with an unreal, uh, unrealistic expectation of uh, home prices? And wait a second, didn't we have a whole lot of foreclosures and all that sort of thing? And I, I, I just want to just get that out right up front. This is not no. 2008, because in 2008, the housing market collapsed so much that a ton of people were upside down. They had negative equity. They had no equity. In 2008, my dog Garth could have applied for a $300,000 no loan for a mortgage, for a mortgage and gotten that. I mean, it's, oh. it was a very different time, right? Gar Garth would have chewed up the paperwork. But yes, that's yeah. true. It would have yeah. never made it. No, it was there. a totally different time. The, the issue now is home prices are going up so much that we're starting to see some And it's some because of inventory, issues. right? Was, we it were is. lacking in inventory. It, it is. And, and getting back to Cincinnati, I, I, I mean, this is the, the wild part. You assume Phoenix is going to be, you know, that's that's attracting a lot of Californians. You hear about Phoenix all the time with home prices going up. And yeah, Phoenix is the hottest market as far as increase in home prices. But Cincinnati has been extremely consistent in being the most rapid turnover, the hottest market from a standpoint of how long does it take to sell my house? Uh, right here in Cincinnati, it's incredible. It was yeah. number one, I think, June, July, and August. We tied for Nashville. Nashville's a hot market. Who would have thought this? It, it, yeah. It's amazing how many people are buying homes in the Midwest and driving prices up and snapping them right up almost immediately. Yeah, so to your point, in July, the average house in Cincinnati was in the market for eight days, right? So the fastest yeah. they, they would go off the market in the country, it slowed down to 10 days in August. Um, but still, in Southwest Ohio, um, the median listing price grew about 10% in August compared to the same time last year. And Cincinnati is fifth out of the 50 largest metros yep. for our home equity value increasing over the past year. So so even though we talk about the fact that things are starting to cool down, it does not mean that it is suddenly a buyer's market. We yeah. are still very, very much in a seller's market. Oh, no question. In northern Kentucky, where you are, I mean, they saw uh, median price increases grow by 8.5%. So, yeah. you know, the whole area is hot, I guess, is, is my point. And getting back to Phoenix... You know, it's just a different ball game out there. They're looking at a 28% increase in uh, median home equity and a value increase of $42,000. It's just stratospheric out there. But, you know, getting back to Cincinnati, I, my question is, is is this seasonal or, or, or is it, you know, the beginning of a trend? Because we are dealing with 
people going back to school. There's a lot of issues. And, you know, maybe I don't want to list right now. Maybe I'll wait till the spring when the market gets hot again. You know, so there there may be some seasonal adjustments that go into this, but it's still one heck of a healthy market. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we make sense of what's happening in the real estate market. It appears that nationally and even locally, things are starting to cool down a little bit. And I think maybe see that leaves some people who are saying, well, I was thinking about putting my house in the market, but you're right. Traditionally, you don't put your house in the market in October, November, December. You wait until the spring comes back around. But honestly, the real estate experts that I've talked to lately say, uh-uh, go ahead and put it on the market. Well, uh, no. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. Even though things are cooling off a little bit, it's still hot enough that it makes sense to put it on the market now. And you'll still probably sell it relatively quickly. Oh, no question. It's still a seller's market, and and you know keep in mind the people that tell you that you want to list, they're generally real estate brokers that make money buying and selling, so they're yeah. always going to say it's a good market. I think to some degree, but it is. I, I mean, we normally have a five and a half to six months supply, and we're looking at an average turn, turnover within forty days, forty one right. days. Yeah, you know, so it just gives you an idea of how out of kilter things are and how much of a seller's market it really is. I think, Amy, it's driven a lot of buyers away. I mean, you know, if you're a buyer and, you know, you put an offer in on a place, even at list, but 30 other offers show up and they wave off all contingencies and they're 20 grand above list, you know, at some point you do that two or three times, you got to say, I, I'm out. I'm going to wait till this gets back to normal. And, and I think you will see that day, but I, I wonder if it's just driven a lot of buyers away. Well, and, and for those who have just sidelined yourselves because you're you're tired of the craziness of it, well, there might be a little bit of relief coming up. Turns out the home market could be getting a major supply shock. Uh, so starting tomorrow, the extended mortgage forbearance program that the federal government put in place starts to wind down. Now, at the height of the program, there were like 7.2 million homeowners who were kind of helped with this program. Now there's still a million and a half borrowers that are protected by this program, that protection goes away, which means those people are going to be faced with some really difficult decisions. Yeah, Can yeah. I continue to pay, right? And if yeah. they can't, we might see a lot of houses going on the market. Yeah, and this was a program that really, I think, was a lifesaver for a lot of people that, you know, yeah. lost their jobs or, you know, were obviously negatively affected by the pandemic in some way, shape, or form. I, I mean, that's one of the biggest fears anybody has is, I can't make my mortgage payment. Am, am I going to lose my home? So this protected that from happening. But, you know, here we are a year and a half later, and you still have a million and a half people that are in forbearance, that are part of this program, and that help is going away. Zillow's estimating maybe a quarter of those people are going to say, you know what, I've got equity in the house, so I'm not going to walk away from, from the mortgage, but I, I am going to list it, and, and okay, maybe I have to go back to renting or downsizing or something like that. And, and you know, 25% of a million and a half, you're, you're talking, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand 500,000 uh, potential uh, new homes going on the market when there's 1.3 million listed. So, you know, this could add a whole bunch of inventory relatively quickly if Zillow's correct with their estimate. And that would be another reason that maybe we'll see prices and listings start to drop a little bit more and get 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 back down to earth. Well, when you mentioned that there are currently 1.3 million houses listed in the U.S., there are 
80 million homeowners. So that's why we're seeing exactly yeah. what we're seeing. But yeah. you dump another three, four, five hundred thousand houses into that market, and you're right, things will get normal really, really quickly. Um, and so, and, and, and housing experts believe that inventory is going to continue to increase uh, because more sellers just feel comfortable. You know, when this pandemic first started, um, I remember talking to a realtor and saying, like, how do you do this? How do you sell house? You know, yeah. people yeah. were afraid to go into the grocery store, much less a stranger's house. Yeah. We've become a lot more comfortable going into people's homes again. People have become even comfortable buying things online, sight, uh, sight unseen, which I couldn't do, but more yeah. power to you if you can. But buy a house, sight unseen? That's, that's a step. That's a big old step. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think we're just kind of moving in a direction where uh, there's just a lot of things happening all at once, kind of a perfect storm to kind of cool off the market uh, and, and and maybe get to a little more normal. Um, we'll see. But I think some habits from this pandemic will stick around for years. And one of those is these pocket listings that we've talked about. Yeah. And that is where, uh, you know, a realtor approaches you. Yes, you're looking to sell your house. Well, if you sell with me, I can show you houses that never even hit the market. In fact, I've got, you know, three people that are looking to sell in a certain neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it all kind of happens behind closed doors uh, and never hits the general, you know, the MLS listings. Nobody else has a chance to even bid on those houses. So these things, they might stick around. Yeah. And, and they've been around. They're just more popular. And I, I read an estimate that maybe 20 percent of all listings are pocket listings, which is a huge number. I, if I were selling, I wouldn't want to do that, though. I want as many people to know about my house instead of, hey, by the way, I heard of this this deal that's going on. This guy might be getting rid of his place. You know, you, you yeah. want you want the word to get out to as many people as possible so that it's kind of an auction environment so you can make some serious money. But a lot of people are opting for this. And, and you know, it seems to be a trend that may stick around. The real estate market has certainly changed. Here's the Simply Money point. The housing market is beginning to cool down, but it is still very much a seller's market. All right, this is something I'm a huge fan of. One of the best savings accounts when it comes to your retirement. One that you may, may be missing out on, the health savings account. I'm going to say this, Steve. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. You're not as big I, of a I'm fan. not. Yeah, a health savings account is an account, by the way, you can only use it. And I know you're a big proponent, and I'm not against them. They have a great use but can only be used in a high-deductible health insurance plan. Yes. So, yeah, you've got to you've – and your employer knows exactly what qualifies and, and does not qualify. But if you have a high-deductible or you are considering a high-deductible health insurance plan, an HSA is a pretty darn good way to – to start saving money pre-tax to be used at a later date for those health expenses or maybe even in retirement. So we don't have any chronic conditions in my family. And, and I think if you do, then a high deductible plan is probably likely off the right. table. I know many people who've run the numbers and said, we know what we pay out of pocket every year. And, you know, we know what our insurance covers and it just doesn't make sense. My plan every year is that I'm going to pay um, any health care cost out of pocket. Um, and then what I do is I put as much money into the HSA, the health savings account, as I can. And the reason why I love these is, of course, the tax advantage. There's nothing. Oh, it's tax advantages are huge. A gift from Uncle Sam that comes with a bow on top. Yeah. And I don't know how many gifts you've gotten from Uncle Sam with a bow on top <laughs> no, in your none. lifetime, but Zilch. he doesn't send out very many of these. So it's triple tax advantage, meaning it's it's coming out of your gross pay into this account. You don't pay taxes on it then. 
it grows, right, without mm-hmm. tax-free. And then when you take it out for qualified medical expenses, tax-free. And these have evolved over the past few years in a huge way where you can also invest this money so it grows. When you look at the fact that the average couple, and I just saw, Steve, the latest numbers um, from Fidelity, if you are going to retire as a couple in 2021, you better have $300,000 yeah. set aside for health care costs in retirement. So if you can, if, if all of those things work out for you, right, a high deductible plan can make sense. You have a little bit of money on the sidelines that you can go ahead and pay for health care costs as they come up. What I mean, what we choose to do is just keep pushing that money toward the future with a plan to use it in retirement. Yeah, and and, and a family can put up to seventy two hundred bucks a year into these plans. And and I have run financial plans with people that have done these from day one, and they might have forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars in their HSA, and it's invested, which only five percent of the people are doing. And most people in HSA plans just keep it in a bank account earning almost zero interest. But you can open up an HSA through a brokerage firm, invest that money. It continues to grow tax deferred. And in certain cases, I mean, some of these people that have good balances, they're going to use these in retirement. They're going to use that fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in uh, in accumulated HSA funds. And that now in retirement, that could be used for, again, qualified medical expenses like vision. That's not covered by Medicare like dental. That's not covered by Medicare. So it works great. Here's the problem I had with it. I tried this for two years and it only took two outpatient visits for a procedure my wife had that ate up the 72. Well, at the time it was less than 7,200 was allowed, but ate up all the money that we had put in the plan. And I, I, in our case, it just didn't work. So your comment about if you have medical conditions that are ongoing, that are, are chronic, maybe not but maybe if you can afford to pay for those expenses out of a different account. And and in that case, it can work. Yeah. I will say, and and this is one thing that I came across during this time, it is my infamous bowling injury where I broke my rib. (laughs) It's not a contact sport. Allie, right? (laughs) Only I would, of course, be talking to someone else, not paying attention, fall on top of the ball return, (laughs) break a rib. Uh, And so a few weeks later, I go to my doctor in so much pain. uh, And he says, I'm going to give you a shot. And I think you should go and get an x-ray. And and I said to him, well, like, what's the point of having an x-ray? Like, you're not going to do anything different. But the reason why I was asking that question, I wouldn't normally do it is because I'm here cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching in my ear because I know I'm going to have to pay that out of pocket. So I think some of the proactive things that you would do um, if you you didn't have a high deductible plan, it just changes. So a lot of factors to keep in mind here, but if a high deductible plan ultimately makes sense for your family, an HSA should be a no-brainer coming along with that. And Steve, a lot of employers, right, to incentivize you because they pay less for a high deductible plan, mm-hmm. um, will give you some seed money for that HSA. So sometimes there's free money oh, in that as well. If your employer matches, you really have to consider it because, you know, general advice. Free money, don't turn it down. If the employer is going to match, yeah, take a hard look and, and consider an HSA. Here's the Simply Money point. Make saving in a health savings account, an HSA, one of your financial priorities if you're eligible and it makes sense for your family. Procter & Gamble expected to release a COVID vaccine requirement. Uh, Steve, we've said this many times. I am so glad I'm not in HR as we make oh, these can decisions. Can you imagine? Yeah, but Procter oh. & Gamble has 
tens of thousands of employees, and they're saying, okay, now everyone's going to have to be vaccinated. I believe it's by November 1st. Uh, yeah, that's that's where, what I've got for a date. And, and, you know, Amy, this is the first time that I, at least I've seen a private employer do this. Everything we've heard about with vaccine mandates, that's come from College campuses. Mostly, yeah, colleges and hospitals. Yeah. So here's a, a huge local employer. And by the way, Ohio is something called an at-will state. That means in Ohio, uh, most employees are, they can be terminated for a reason or no reason at all. Just mm. pack your bags and go. So, yeah. you know, this this is something. It'll be real interesting to see how this uh, how this pans out. But right now, uh, Procter & Gamble is saying either provide us proof that you've been vaccinated, have a company approved, not just you saying it's okay, but the company has approved that you've got an exemption or begin weekly COVID test results to the company effective November 1st. Big deal. I think a lot of other companies are, are paying attention to this. And, and um, I don't know. What I've been reading so far is that a lot of courts are upholding these these yeah, mandates. They yeah. are. And it, and it comes down to this for a lot of these companies, the carrot or the stick. Uh, you know, Procter & Gamble going with the stick, Western and Southern going with the carrot. They're offering $1,000, what they're calling vaccine reward. So if you are an eligible full-time employee, you are vaccinated, you are getting vaccinated, you get 1000 bucks. If you're an eligible part-time employee, $500. And keep in mind, this is the company that also gave $1,000 just to each employee as a bonus saying like, hey, thanks for sticking with us, for hanging, for helping us get through this pandemic. Uh, obviously, that worked well for them. I don't know what, you know, which works better, which doesn't. But I do know that a lot of companies are faced with really difficult decisions right now. Oh, no, no question about it. I, I, I think I, I wonder how many people are fully vaccinated, but told uh, their company that's handing out bonuses. I uh, haven't gotten that second shot yet. Uh, and give me the thousand dollars <laughs> and I'll be glad to run out and get it and then go home and get their their vaccination card. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I hope those bonuses kind of translate into other other companies also. That's I, I, I think the character is the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how this all plays out. And I definitely think you're going to have some disgruntled employees at the places where you're being forced uh, to do it. But, uh, you know, I also get it from the employee from the employer standpoint. If they're dealing with uh, customers and things like that out in public, you have to keep everyone safe. So this is just a tough one. And I think we're going to continue to see this one play out for some time to come. All right. Well, it's really hard to believe, but somehow we're getting close to the end of the year. So tonight, right, we're almost October 1st. You've got just a few months left of the year and we're already getting into holiday shopping season. So take a pause, hit the pause button. Here are some things we think if you can do these now, get your money house in order. You're going to end the year in pretty good shape. <laughs> every every year it seems to come sooner and sooner, doesn't it? I, I mean, we're <laughs> talking we're talking about, you know, Christmas uh, already and and yeah. you know, here we're not even uh, at Halloween. It was gorgeous over the weekend. I mean, this is, you know, week. beautiful yeah. weather. I'm not ready to celebrate fall and do year-end planning, but you know, you know what? You kind of have to. And, and yeah. there are there are certain things that a, a certified financial planner like myself is going to be talking to clients and investors about this time of year. I've already started doing it uh, w with uh, people that I talked to. Um, one, of, one of the items is a lot of people forgot that there are still required minimum distributions. They were waved off last the year. The dreaded RMDs. Yep, you could take forget the RMD. about them last year, but not you, this year. And you know, the IRS reserves its toughest 
and steepest penalty for those that just plain old forget. I mean, the IRS will penalize you 50% yeah. of what you were supposed to take out if you didn't take it out, even if it's because you just forgot. So, yeah, before the end of the year, if you're subject to required minimum distributions, make sure you take it out. And, you know, if you're, if it's the first year you're subject to an RMD, technically you may have until April 1st. Don't do that. Just don't do yeah. it. Get it done by the end of the year. Otherwise, you'll have to take two out next year because you'll take out this year's and next year's all in the same taxable year. So don't forget your required minimum distributions. No, there's no reward for waiting until the last minute to figure things out. It's just lack of peace of mind, losing sleep. Don't do that to yourself. Get this figured out quickly. Um, also, uh, if you're contributing to a 401k, if you have one at work and you're not maxing it out, maybe you've got a little stimulus money left over, uh, some of that money from the child tax credit. Make sure, look at what the maximum contribution right now for an individual, $19,500 for your 401k. If you're not close, can you get there? Can you bump it up? Also, maybe you can just bump up how much you're, you're giving on a monthly basis, 1%, 2%. You probably aren't going to miss that at all in your paycheck. But what you'll notice over time is that balance starts to look a heck of a lot healthier. I've got one more. Um, flexible savings accounts or health savings accounts, FSAs and HSAs. There's know a basic, the difference. There's a, a really important difference. I took care of my, I, I have a flexible savings account and I took care of mine uh, this morning. I had to order some more contact lenses and, and that pretty much ate up my balance. Here's the deal. On a flexible savings account, FSA, it's use it or lose it. So if you don't spend your balance that you have in that FSA by December 31st, it's gone. You can't use it next year. Steve, I'm the person who's been at Walgreens at 10 o'clock clock the night before <laughs> I legitimately yeah. buying large boxes of band-aids buying contact solution and things like that so for it's interesting it, it works for you you know we've got kids it's hard to figure out how much to put in these accounts yeah, uh, yeah. year over year so I decide used to do an FSA I don't do a flexible spending account anymore I do do an HSA a health savings account because that money never expires and if you don't use it for health related expenses this year well that's fine you can even keep pushing it off into retirement uh, and the money grows. You put the money in tax-free. It grows tax-free. You take it out tax-free for qualified health care expenses. So, you know, both of those accounts, great things to have depending on your situation. Keep in mind with that HSA, you have to have a high deductible health care plan. Yeah, and again, a year in, that's when we do our tax planning. And if you've got any losses, um, take a look at maybe harvesting some. Uh, take the loss and, and uh, use that to offset any gains that you have this year. Although the way the past year has been, Amy, i got to think if you've got some losses, that you can harvest, you might want to start shopping for for additional, maybe a, a fresh approach to your investment advising. <laughs> sure. You know, may, maybe think about how those decisions happen and got you into the loss column. You know, it's just a good time of the year to look at what you're doing with your money, make sure everything's in order. Here's the Simply Money point. At the end of the year is already coming. Now's a great time to get some tax planning and extra saving done early. All right, if a few years ago... You would have reached out to me, told, to me and asked me to Zoom you. I would have not had any idea what you were talking about. But now we all know what Zoom is, and it's become so common in our lives that now we're starting to do interviews and search for jobs via Zoom. Joining us tonight with some great insights on how to best do that and present ourselves in this virtual world is Carla Messer. She's the Chief Results Officer of Best Work, Assistant Professor at Indiana University East, 
goodness, Carla, when you think about all the changes that have come about as the result of this pandemic, but this is one of the biggest ones, we've learned how to connect with people in such a virtual way. I agree, Amy. This has really basically disrupted everything we know about meetings. And if we think really back to those of us who remember things like the Jetsons and how futuristic it seemed that we might actually be talking to people that we could see. And then, you know, we began to do that with our iPhones. But now to just really be so dependent on this virtual medium is quite incredible. So how is it? Because I think for some people who are interviewing in this way, it has to be the first time. We've never done anything like this before. So how is it different to interview for a job and try to connect with someone when you're sitting in your own house in front of a laptop? This is a great question because we have so many opportunities to connect virtually on Zoom, but they're not all the same. So when we're one of a hundred participants on a call and our face is the size of a postage stamp, that's a radically different approach to planning than we need when we're the center of attention in an interview. And, you know, we, we talked about Zoom and Zooming, but the truth of the matter, what really trips up a lot of people is that they throw an application that they are not familiar with. They may be familiar with Zoom, but we're also using WebEx and Teams, and there are, you know, other applications that people are using. And so one of the common mistakes is just being unfamiliar familiar with the tool that's being used. So the first question you should ask in the interview when you've been asked to, to do an, a virtual interview is what what tool, what application they're going to be using, and make sure you have that downloaded in the full version and have had a chance to know what all the buttons do if it's one that you haven't used. Oh, my gosh, I'm so guilty of this. Luckily, it was just a meeting, not an interview. But someone said we need to connect. It was a pretty important issue. They sent me, and it was an an app that I have never used before. And they were connected waiting for me for probably a good 15 minutes before I could figure out how to connect. So I I can only imagine if you were in a high-pressure situation, uh, stressed out about getting ready to do an interview, and then can't connect on time. So understanding what that technology is, how it works, what else do we need to keep in mind? Well, of course, by now, if anybody has watched any uh, of the Zooms, you know when you see somebody who doesn't have the right background, when you see all of their things in their house piled up behind them, it's very distracting. We all have seen that before. And so these are the first things we have to do. And a lot of people are very worried about, I don't have a, a clean space. And particularly for those who live in a in a smaller space, we may not have the perfectly, you know, clear back wall to uh, serve as a background. And so this is why those virtual backgrounds have become so popular right now, because you can have all kinds of things behind you and hide all of that stuff behind Mm -hmm. a virtual background. And in fact, people can walk quietly behind you and not see you. And so if if you have the opportunity to pick a background and um, and or a virtual background, that's the first thing we want to do. In general, we're trying to eliminate any distractions. So if the interview is going on and they're distracted by sounds of a barking dog or somebody's mowing the lawn outside or um, construction going on, all of those things are going to detract from your messaging. So finding a good space, a quiet space is is going to be the most important thing that you can do. And then, you know, from there, um, making sure that you've prepared your computer. These are the things that people often forget. Turn off your notification, close your email and other files so that you don't get a pop-up right in the middle of an, of an interview that distracts you.
You know, and also because this is such a different concept and you're right, it's one thing to sit in a meeting with 30 other people where your face is hardly able to be seen on this and, and another thing to be interviewing. How do you practice for an interview that's going to take place via Zoom or one of these other meets? Yeah, practice is really important, even if it's just a, you know, a two or three minute production practice so that you know how to use all the buttons you have logged on, you have adjusted the volume, et cetera. And then every one of these tools has a recording feature. So you can either record yourself answering the questions, um, but even just pulling yourself up and looking at your own video and adjusting all of those elements will give you an idea of what it looks like. But, you know, nothing... Nothing speaks louder to us than seeing actual video or hearing ourselves to understand, is my volume loud enough? Am I going to be that person whose, um, whose head is, is very small and darkly lit on the screen? And those are things that don't make good first impressions. So what we're yeah. trying to do here is center our face and allow all of these nonverbals to be seen and to um, you know, be the focus of attention. You know, you mentioned nonverbals, and it is, it's difficult when someone's one-dimensional rather than sitting across the table with you. And I know that, you know, often I've been interviews in the past, and you can tell when it's wrapping up because their, their posture starts to shift. Uh, you can tell it's over. But how do you, how can you tell in a Zoom interview whether, okay, it's time to exit, and how do you do that gracefully? Well, I have two answers to this. First of all, because I have kind of a rainmaker uh, background myself and, and sales, I think that in any interview, you should be closing at the end of the interview. And so one of the ways that you can do this is by asking the interviewers, what are the next steps? And then when they're finished, you know what those next steps are. But I also recommend in this situation where you are the interviewee to stay on until the very end and they either ask you to leave or that they say, uh, you know, here's what our next steps are and they log off first. One of things we don't want to do is avoid missing any last second questions that they may have. Any horror stories, Carla, that you've heard about someone who just really bombed this process? Well, I I have a couple of stories where the, the the problem has been continually someone who does not adjust their volume or doesn't speak loud enough. And so, oh. you know, oftentimes in an interview, we're nervous, and that can cause us to speak either uh, slower, more quietly, or speed us up and speak really fast. So our rate of speech can be directly influenced oftentimes um, by our stress level. And so the biggest mistake really was an entire interview that at the end of the interview, the, the interview panel team on Zoom said, we didn't hear anything that this person had to say. They oh. just basically kind of nodded and kept asking questions, but they didn't really hear anything despite asking numerous times for um, higher volume. And so this is the worst case scenario where the things that you need to share your competitive advantage are missed because of either a technical or because of a lack of competence. So practicing really tells you whether or not you're going to be heard or not. Great insights on what to do and what not to do if you have to do a Zoom interview, a virtual interview. And I'm assuming that probably a lot of people, if you're out there looking for jobs right now, will likely be hired in that way. Uh, Carla Messer has been joining us tonight. She's the Chief Results Officer of Best Work and an Assistant Professor at Indiana University East. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station.
You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send this show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it too. At All Worth Financial, we help you retire better.